Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. Back in October 2021, the dramatic rise of strike activity at Nabisco, Kellogg's, John Deere, as well as in filmmaking and healthcare and higher education, brought commentators to speak of that month as Striketober. Then, Roughly 25,000 workers took part in work stoppages throughout the country. Since 2021, the U.S. union movement's willingness to use its most powerful weapon, the withdrawal of labor, has continued to accelerate. So much so that October 2021 now pales in comparison to the fall of 2023, when, according to the Cornell Labor Action Tracker, over 300,000 workers have walked off the job. In this episode of our podcast, we examine the recent threatened strike and massive contract victory of the Teamsters as that union took on UPS, the nation's largest unionized private sector employer. In September this year, Teamsters president Sean O'Brien spoke about the strike weapon and labor's resurgence at a large public forum hosted by the School of Labor and Urban Studies. Following his talk, he engaged with a panel of prominent labor activists and scholars we feature highlights from O'Brien's keynote address and his animated exchange with one of those panelists, the labor organizer and scholar, Jane McAlevey. Moderating the event is New Labor Forum Book Reviews editor, Samir Santi, and we begin with Samir. It is a tremendous privilege and honor of mine to have the opportunity to introduce our keynote of the Labor Speaker Series this year, International Brotherhood of Teamsters General President Sean O'Brien. President O'Brien is a fourth generation member of the union, having got his start as a heavy equipment driver in the rigging industry at the age of 18. In 2006, he became the youngest president in the long history of Teamsters Local 25 in Boston, and under his leadership, that local increased its membership by more than 25%. In 2011, he was elected Eastern Region Vice President for the IBT, and in March of 2022, about a year and a half ago, he was elected as the 11th General President of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. In addition to having led a successful contract campaign with UPS, 
the nation's largest private sector union employer, and having overseen all matters involving the IBT's 1.2 million members, President O'Brien has over the past few months spent time advocating for working people and working class interests on TV, on Capitol Hill, and all over the place. So it goes without saying that those of us at the CUNY School of Labor and Urban Studies are incredibly grateful that he's made the time to be here with us today, and we're incredibly proud to have him open our speaker series this year. Thank you very much. It's an honor and a privilege to be here today. We achieved history collectively in the Teamsters Union, and we were able to secure the largest, most historic collective bargaining agreement in the United States of America. It is the largest private sector collective bargaining agreement covering 340,000 men and women throughout the United States. It's a contract that's very diverse, very intricate, and it's one of a kind when it comes to achieving the goals and objectives that our rank and file members set forth. And when we went into these negotiations, uh, we had clear and concise objectives. And those objectives were met because we had rank and file interaction, which is the most important tool and the most vital leverage that you can utilize in any and all negotiations. And what we did differently this time, and you know, the Teamsters Union, and I can say this because I'm four generations, I've held every single position uh, within the organization. We were antiquated previously as far as our thought process, and we were campaigning to take back our international union. You often heard our rhetoric or my rhetoric saying, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So when we took over leadership 18 months ago, it was clear and concise that what we were doing was not working, it was antiquated, and we needed to not lose sight of our core values and institutional knowledge and generational knowledge that's passed down, but we also had to incorporate the new way of thinking, a more sophisticated way of thinking, a more sophisticated way of getting our messaging out. You know, back 40 or 50 years ago, when you negotiated a contract as a union leader, you came in and banged your hand on the table and said, these are our demands or else, and, you know, through fear and intimidation, you usually got what you wanted, which was a good thing. But unfortunately, times change, and tactics need to change, and that was one of our goals and objectives in this UPS agreement. Now, historically, the Teamsters Union have been involved in four national negotiations, would go in a year pre prior to the contract expiring. We also have, outside of the national agreement, contained in the national agreement, we've got 44 supplements, addendums, and riders. And those supplements, addendum, and riders, for everybody's clarification, are basically local area working conditions and also different benefit uh, packages. So we had to navigate through uh, a lot of intricacies, as I stated earlier. But historically, we'd go in, negotiate the national agreement, and then focus on the supplemental agreements. And the supplemental agreements are probably more important than the national agreement because those are the local area conditions. Those are the conditions outside of the national that are germane to the communities and neighborhoods and the geographies that people work. And they're all different. Some are high cost of living areas like, you know, New York City, Boston, San Francisco. Others, you know, maybe more rural, doesn't require a whole lot of a cost of living, but the contracts are the same throughout. So it was important that we recognize that we needed to take on this animal with a whole different approach. And often two times we were going into negotiations as a Teamsters Union 
impatient wanting to get the deal done. What we did as a leadership team, not only at UPS, but right off the bat, we had three national contracts up. And we made a statement right away that we were not going to negotiate beyond expiration dates of contract. We were not going to make extensions because that's convenient for the company. That's convenient for corporate America. That's convenient. But it's not convenient for our members. It's not effective for our members. So what we did with UPS is we gave a directive. And what's important now, I think, in the labor movement that we haven't been able to do, but we recently have done this at UPS, we, the union, control the narrative and flow of how these negotiations were going to go. There is hope. There is, there is determination to fight, to fight for what is important, to fight for the rights that you know, have been fought for us for over 100 years and to protect, preserve, and improve working conditions moving forward. So that was a tremendous success. And I think, uh, well, I know that this is the template throughout the union movement on how to actually design, execute, and ratify a collective bargaining agreement. But more importantly, it sets a tone for how corporate America should be dealt with. We, we were able to expose this company on their earnings. We were able to expose this company on lack of respect for the people that make them a success. But more importantly, we were able to hold them accountable because we had a credible threat of a militant union that wasn't afraid to strike. And I think we all have to recognize that sometimes the threat is worse than the action, especially when you can demonstrate the solidarity and the collaboration. I mean, look, the power of collaboration to effectuate change was never so evident in what we just achieved in this UPS agreement. And why is that important? It's important for our UPS workers, but I think it's important for the labor movement. Because the one thing we haven't done good in a labor movement is organize new members. I think, you know, for too long, and that's one of the reasons why you know, our leadership team, when we decided to run three years ago, we were sick and tired of seeing that our organization was being babysat. There was no progressive movement. There was no thinking. There was no direction. There was no plan to organize. We were just sitting back, hoping for the best, and, you know, throwing our hands up with no real plan to make this union bigger, faster, or stronger. So what we did with the UPS agreement and all the other agreements we did, DHL, American Red Cross, we got record earnings, we got record benefit increases, ability to organize with card check neutrality, but we've shown corporate America that we are not afraid to fight, and you can't be afraid to lose, because it's a battle you may lose, but the war is going to go on forever and ever. And so when we negotiate these contracts, that's a vital part of organizing. Because I think we all can recognize through social media, through this next generation, that there is a thirst for knowledge. And people want a demonstration right now of what they are going to get if they organize and join a union. It's unfortunate, and it, our labor laws are so weak right now, and that corporate America and these big companies like Amazon and Starbucks, they spend hundreds of millions of dollars per year trying to bust unions all over this country. And it's, 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 it's actually disturbing when you organize, and it takes 400 days on average to negotiate a substandard first contract. But when you have strong contracts that set industry standards, 
and you go to workers that are non-union, that are doing the same work as our members at UPS, our members at DHL, our members in the Republic Waste, our members in construction, and you show them the highest standards, where you show them you're going to be guaranteed wage increases, you're going to have cost of living increases, you're going to have fully paid medical, you're going to have pensions that you're going to be able to retire on and maintain your lifestyle when you retire, but more importantly, you're going to have dignity and respect in the workplace, that is going to be our biggest tool to organizing. And Amazon, as we've made no secret from the Teamsters Union, they're a major target for us, and we are going after them with everything we have. And the one thing that's clear is that this fight is going to continue. We owe it to the people that have paved the way for us. We owe it to the future members. But you owe it to yourselves to have the courage and conviction to take on that fight. And I got a message on behalf of the Teamsters Union, 1.3 million strong. When you take one of us on in organized labor, you take all of us on. And it's a full contact sport. Put your helmets on and buckle your chin straps. Thank you very much. First is uh, Jane McAlevey. Jane is a longtime union organizer, negotiator, author, and scholar of the labor movement, who also happens to be a fourth generation union member like President O'Brien. After having spent many years working on organizing campaigns, large and small, around the country, she went on to earn a PhD in sociology from our very own graduate center at the City University of New York, where she began working on her first of what have become multiple acclaimed books on union organizing and labor strategy. Her most recent book, co-authored with Abby Lawler, is Rules to Win By, Power and Participation in Union Negotiations, published this year by Oxford University Press. Jane is, a, is currently a senior policy fellow at the UC Berkeley Institute for Labor and Employment Relations and writes a regular column for The Nation magazine. And we are incredibly privileged also to have President O'Brien join us. So, I did the introduction of President O'Brien. We all know him well at this point. So I'm going to kick it off. Um, Jane, I want to move to you. Um, and I think it might be helpful if we could start by taking a step back and reflecting upon where we are as a labor movement today um, and what you see as some of the key strategic questions we face. I mean, as President O'Brien spoke about, I mean, it's an exciting time, but it's also a challenging time. And the excitement is real, but also shouldn't be overstated. We are still seeing union membership drop. It is as hard as ever to win a first contract. So could you talk a little bit about how you make sense of this moment and where where we been, where are we going? I think we're in very interesting times. Precipice of, you know, authoritarian rule and some real disasters out there. And then incredible promise, mainly, because workers are fighting back in a really big way. I think, you know, to the two unions that we are, one, addressing right here at the table, the Teamsters and the rebuild of the Teamsters under new leadership, and the UAW, which is also a union under, frankly, brand new leadership, we are already seeing the impact of something that I have always thought a lot about as an organizer and negotiator, and now as an author, which is the role of leadership. It's pretty fundamental at the shop floor level as well as at the national level. So you can see the change in two union leadership teams in big private sector unions has already led to dramatic change. I want to back that up for a minute by saying that for the 20, maybe 40 years, depending on the two unions, where they were not being led by brilliant leadership that was bold, rather in some cases corrupt, asleep in the switch and just waiting to let things take whatever direction they took. There was a lot of other really exciting work happening. And that was important, I think, to set the stage for what came today. So in 2012, a marker that I think really mattered 
was when the Chicago teach really 2010, the Chicago Teachers Union leadership had a radical change. And it led to, in 2012, a strike that changed the discussion in this country, in Chicago. Suddenly, you had 28,000 education workers off the job, which itself <laughs> was radical in the last 30 years in this country. But not only were they 100% out, and every single right-wing institution continues in Chicago to prove, like, three of them crossed. You can't say 100% out. You know, three out of 28,000. All right, round it down. Anyway, that strike was not brilliant just, just because it produced a 100% strike with just a year and a half of the leadership getting ready to do it from what was largely a dead union for decades leading up to it. Their last strike had been 30-something years earlier. And the members were kind of put to sleep in the same way that they were in the auto workers, in the same way they were for years in the Teamsters, when the members are just ancillary um, to the process of the union itself. So Chicago kicks it off. They win an incredible strike. And part of why they won that incredible strike was because they did something ahead of time to outflank a very popular, or he was no longer, but a popular mayor when he first came to town, which is Rahm Emanuel, right, who left the actual White House who was the national congressional fundraiser for Democrats, that explains a lot, by the way, um, and went back to become the mayor of Chicago and set his sole determination to destroy that strike. What he didn't know was that Karen Lewis, the genius president of the union, and her entire operation in the rank and file was way ahead of them in winning over community support and parent support. So when they took to the streets, and when, at the time, Mayor Rahm Emanuel stood up and said, you are hurting the parents and hurting the kids, uh, about 400,000 parents poured into the street in the marches behind the educators. That, to me, was game changer one. That sets the tone for the changes that come later. Because in my life experience, workers, workers are willing to stand up and risk and fight when they see other workers standing up, risking, fighting and winning, winning. I want to talk about winning. Workers don't stand up and take risk when they see defeat. They stand up and take risk when they see victory. So I think that's frankly the beginning of a huge rebuild. And just to go through another couple of game changers, you know, that leads to um, a huge strike in Los Angeles in 2019 at the United Teachers of Los Angeles. Again, massive, 100% out, shut the city down and one on a broad array of social issues inside and outside the workplace. Historic contract inside, built community support behind them, engaged the broader community in actual contract surveys, regional meetings with parent leaders to make sure the parents were brought to the table, and one on a bunch of issues that are not what we call, they're not mandatory subjects of bargaining. Uh, labor law is so complicated. But there's mandatory subjects and there's permissive subjects. And they went from mandatory on the power of that strike and forced permissive subjects like bargaining to keep the immigration customs enforcement police off of every single school in Los Angeles. That was an enormous victory that came from the parents' demands because the ICE officers would pull up outside of public schools, <clears throat> wait for the kid to come out, wait for the parent to show up and arrest the parent. Like that's what was going on in our public schools and being sanctioned. They eliminated that. And then I think the game changers become, in my own union, I should say, I'm a member of the United Auto Workers. I had the pleasure of voting to make it direct election by the president. That was a first fund vote. And the second two fund votes, because there were two more, 
much to get. Sean Fain as the leader of the union. By 2022, we have, you know, Sean O'Brien in leadership. Soon after that, we have um, uh, John Fain um, in leadership. Um, and even this year, we kick off 2023 with a massive strike by educators, this time 60,000 strong. There's a unity between the, I'll say, harder to replace and easier to replace. I don't like the term more skilled than less skilled, frankly. I think all workers are skilled. And in between that, we had the 2018, right up into the pandemic, we had the massive strikes, illegal, in red states, across the education sector. So there was a lot building, and there were a lot of workers being, maybe having their expectations re-raised, that if you fight in this country, you can win. And then we had the pandemic. And things got kind of closed down there for a couple of years. And now we're coming out of it. People are fighting like mad all around us. And people are winning. And the more we can win, and show that fighting leads to winning, I think the more fighting there's gonna be and the more winning that there's gonna be. And the old notion of like social partnership, uh, the old one of banging on the table in the European context, social partnership, it's all over, it's all done. Capital is global. When I'm out working in Germany or someplace in Europe, um, all the same union busting tactics that I survived, A-level boss fights in this country, coaching thousands and thousands of workers through and how to beat an A-level boss fight in this country where they're terrorizing you, captive audience meetings, firing people. Um, when you can win those kind of campaigns, it positions you better, not just to go in and sweep up a good first contract in a hell of a lot less days than 400. Um, I like to keep them to about eight months from election to victory by bringing in the whole community everywhere we go as our major source of power. So. You know, there's a, there's a long way to go, but the context that got us to this moment when logistics we know is central, by the way, logistics has been a central discussion my entire life in the labor movement. We just wasn't clear how we were gonna get there given the existing leadership of the unions that could play a central role um, in it. So along the way, we look for other strategic sectors. Education is one, those jobs are not going somewhere else. Maybe privatized, but they're not leaving the United States. Another is healthcare. You know, a nurse is not gonna be giving a shot to somebody from China. They gotta do it actually in their arm up close. So there are other strategic sectors and I think that they helped lay the framework. And my last comment on this is in every one of those unions, just like in the Teamsters and the UAW, bold action, a belief in the power of the rank and file, a belief in the intelligence of the rank and file, Every one of those unions had to go through a leadership change to do what they did, every single one that I just listed. So I think leadership matters because that's when we enable the rank and file to play the kind of role, honor the intelligence of the people who are the members of the union, and direct us, frankly, in the direction that we need to go when we're at the table negotiating. President O'Brien, I want to pose this to you. On the one hand, we should say that we've had a National Labor Relations Board over the last couple of years that has been good to workers, better than at any point in my lifetime, that's for sure. And at the same time, we saw a decision from the Supreme Court not long ago, Glacier Northwest, which involved your union, that threatens to make it illegal to strike in this country. So how do you, I mean, how do you make sense of sort of the political environment that we're up against, the opportunities that workers are creating, and what is to be done, the big, big task to be done? What we've also been doing is we are not going to go right now the NLRB route to try and determine, you know, a group or to try and organize, to try and uh, get certified because it's a long, drawn-out process. I mean, I think I 
said earlier, the average statistic to get a f uh, first year contract is about 406 days. Um, and, you know, workers can only sustain so much. And, you know, that process is very litigious. And we think we're more effective, not only with the Amazon portion, but leveraging, you know, neutrality through direct action. So when we're going to organize a new group, instead of saying, hey, go through the process, what we've been doing now is gauging how strong this group is, empowering that we are going to support them and their families during these tough times, but are you willing to walk off your job to cause direct action to this company, and how long can you sustain it? So, you know, the NLRB has been a lot favorable, but it's still not bulletproof. And, you know, we need to elect people that are not going to just change the leadership of the NLRB, but change the policy of the NLRB, make changes, statutory changes that are actually going to be in effect regardless of who's in control, all for the betterment of working people. You know, we would love to see, and I think everybody on this uh, stage would love to see the PRO Act, where, you know, union busting is a $500 million per year industry for union busters. And, you know, the PRO Act would obviously give us the ability to organize without any threats of retaliation or retribution. So that's why it's important to elect the right people and to ask them the tough questions when they're running for office. Will you support legislation like a PRO Act? The other thing we need to do, I think, in the grand scheme of things, outside of, you know, changing the NLRB process, taking direct action, is we need to take a hard look at not investing in our demise. When you really think about it, a lot of our unions, and I, I sit on many pension funds and health and welfare funds, and, you know, those funds are very important. We want them to do well. A lot of those funds are successful based upon contributions uh, made by employers. But a lot of those funds depend upon investment return. And oftentimes, we don't do a good enough job of seeing what we're actually investing in, like private equity. A lot of private equity that union pension funds and health and welfare funds invest in are investing in direct competition to potentially our demise. They're investing in the Amazons, they're investing in the Uber, they're investing in the Lyfts, they're investing in these companies that have independent contractor models, they're investing in many things that could hurt us. So we've got to do a better job of also taking a look at where we're investing. And the next thing we need to do is focus on the antitrust laws that need to be uh, revisited uh, and changed, and the bankruptcy laws. Now, everybody's heard of Yellow Freight, where they just filed for bankruptcy, 22,000 Teamster jobs, and that's unfortunate. The, the problem with bankruptcy uh, for, for us as unions is that because of the antiquated laws and the lack of change and the lack of fight and the lack of electing the right people, we are the last line of, in, we're last in line if there's anything left at the end of the day to capture on behalf of our members, whether it's owed contributions, whether it's benefits that haven't been paid out, or anything else. So we've got to focus on, you know, many, many different aspects of not just changing LNRB, but looking at bankruptcy laws, looking at where we fall in all this. And that's why it's so important to not only you know, carry out the missions of leadership, as was spoken about earlier, but also to not invest in our demise and look for change in these bankruptcy laws. It makes it too easy for these companies to file for bankruptcy, close down, give out these big bonuses, and then reopen under another brand 
uh, in the simple uh, fashion of just trying to break unions. So there's a lot at stake, but a lot of it has to do with setting policy and electing the right people that are going to help set this policy throughout this country. Jane, I want to pass it to you to, I mean, broadly on the same topic of, of sort of the political environment. I mean, you, re you reference the specter of authoritarianism. I think a Supreme Court like the decision like, like Glacier Northwest is, is a reflection of that very specter. Um, and you've organized in right-to-work states, you've organized in non-right-to-work states, you've organized all over the country. And so can you just talk a little bit about how you see what President O'Brien is talking about? Yeah. Um, you know, one, really excited to have uh, the Teamsters going all in uh, to the Amazon fight. I think that's going to be needed, along with collaboration with the independents and several other players who are getting into that business, right? Uh, Amazon is going to be a multi-year, I think, multi-union war. Um, but in addition to that, I, I mean, I did write about um, the coming Supreme Court decision that we know is around the corner. They're going to make up for the SCOTUS decision around Glacier was essentially just a messy decision. And they are out there looking for a nice, clean Supreme Court decision, either this cycle or next cycle, to functionally try to make all strikes illegal in the private sector, like they often are in the public sector. So one thing that I think right now is that the better we get at actually getting our members on strike, I mean, a credible strike threat is I'm all for it. Sometimes it works for us. But in my life experience, I come out of a union in 1199 New England that believed in routinely striking, just routinely, because the strike is the way that the members retain the muscle to know how to do it. And when the muscle memory goes away, like you don't just walk back in the gym and like bench press 400 pounds, you actually have to go on strike to actually remember how to go on strike. And so one thing is, if you, if you fast forward really with the Supreme Court. I mean, I said two years ago they were just getting on a tear, and they are really just getting on a tear. They are going to, I think we just need to assume, they are going to make the strike illegal, functionally illegal, very, very soon, one cycle or two. They have a lot of priorities of what they're trying to take down at once. <laughs> so I think we have to do uh, a measure of our effectiveness when they pay attention to us. Frankly, they just ignored labor unions for so long because we weren't doing anything. We are doing much that threatened the the status quo of capital, and now we are. Um, I think they're coming for us hard. Um, so the question is, how do we do a hell of a lot of strikes now while they're not quite as legally challenging so that workers actually understand what it's going to take to build to 100% out with full community support because we can do illegal strikes that way. And I'm arguing we better get ready for a hell of a lot of illegal strikes. And in the city of New York, and New York where there's the Taylor Law and all sorts of stuff, I think we're way overdue to start testing illegal strikes in so-called blue states, and we ought to be doing it right now. When you watch the West Virginia, when you watch the West Virginia, I mean, look, to win any strike, legal or illegal, do you have 100% ready to go, and do you have the entire community with you? We know how to do those two things when we put our mind to it. And there's, I. Again, I believe there's going to be a lot of illegal strikes needed very, very soon because they're going to be that way. So one is prepare for illegal strikes, and that takes twice the strength of what we've got right now. And the second is I think the labor movement is still fundamentally doing a really poor job about seeing our own members as the community. Like our vehicle to bringing the community with us is less about creating 
labor community coalitions at the top where people write checks to each other and you know you get someone with the priest and the thing and they show up at your picket <laughs> line. That is like not the way to build community support, though that's what's considered building community support for most of the labor movement right now. And it's not enough just to do good messaging, though boy does good messaging uh, help. We know it does as a form of political education. But the best political education is when we see our own rank and file members as the central actors, not just at the bargaining table, not just in the organizing, but building what I call the third front for power, which is the broader community in which our members live. It's fundamental. In every campaign I've ever run, we've literally done a two-stage process. Stage one, charting the workplace, understanding leadership relationships, who are the informal leaders in the workplace to get to a very big victory and then get to a first contract in record time. And secondly, the second thing we chart is every single relationship that every rank and file member has to their own community. Who is their parish priest? Who's their rabbi? Who's their imam? And then in delegations, once we chart them by the thousands, we then send those workers in to move the equivalent of the undecided informal leaders in the community who can break the entire community in favor of a coming strike or a coming contract campaign. So I think of that as uh, the book I'm working on now, preview book five, is called Leave No Power on the Table. And I think we're still leaving a hell of a lot of power on the table. And maybe it's because I've gone up against some of the biggest SOB union busters in this country from Brent Yesen. If you don't know him, you don't ever want to. <laughs> Beat me up in an elevator once. That was a bad elevator ride. He <laughs> shut the button off on that one. Anyway, I forgot that one. But, you know, sexual assault in an elevator by a union buster, that was fun uh, as a young negotiator. And he was doing worse to the registered nurses in the hospitals, by the way. So from those kind of union busters, like modern-day Pinkertons, we are leaving power on the table. And I think what I learned in really hard, what we call A-level boss fight, meaning there's not a limit on how much they can spend, there's not a limit on how many workers they fire in the campaign. There's not a limit on how many great people they drag out in handcuffs in the middle of a fight who's an identified leader, organic leader in the campaign. What I've learned is that we cannot leave one ounce of power on the table. And one of the biggest untapped parts of the power structure is our broader community and seeing that it's our members who live in the community and themselves have what we call in sociology, I learned at age 45, strong ties versus weak ties. Hiring a staff person to go make relationships with faith leaders has no relationship to organizing the rank and file to go bring their own community into their own fight. It builds unbreakable solidarity, and we're gonna need that kind of front row standing up when these strikes become illegal, like they were in the 1940s and 50s with like, frankly, the images of the wives on the factories with uh, arms sometimes, and I don't mean their own, I mean additional ones, ready to defend the gates before they even got to the workers. Like that is where we are heading because the capitalists are confused again right now by UAW strategy, like that's good, they're knocked off guard. Um, but that fight's gonna escalate. Um, and I think all of us need to know how to, how to be ready to do the escalation with them and stay 10 steps ahead of them. You know, there's a lot of risk versus reward. Uh, whenever you take someone out on the street, and I think we as a union, the Teamsters Union, we strike probably more than anybody, um, or we have lately, uh, and it's very effective, especially when you're extending picking lines nationwide to help support our brothers and sisters in many different arenas. And, you know, uh, it is true that 
we could have had a catastrophic uh, impediment on our right to strike through the Glacier decision. However, we didn't view that as a loss. We viewed that as the best of a worst case scenario moving forward. Uh, but again, to your point, it all starts from leadership. So we can hide behind a decision that wasn't favorable to us. We can hide behind and look for excuses on why we can't do certain things. But we've got to be creative. Number one, when we strike, we've got to assess the group and make certain that we're not compromised in any way, shape, or form, because that's going to be the strength and integrity of the strike, which is most people are uh, compromised financially, so you've got to be willing to make an investment and support those workers and their families when they're out as leaders. But you also got to lead, and unfortunately in the Glacier situation, um, direction wasn't given as far as what happens when you go on strike. You don't have workers go out to go deliver a product and then call the strike and have them leave the truck sitting running. You go out, finish your job, come back and park the trucks before you come across the line. Right? That's the way we were always trained. And you know, to your point, you have to have good leadership. But in the event, and we were prepared because we thought the worst was going to come with this decision that in the event you do strike and you are responsible for losses or whatever may occur, um, you've got to be thinking about before you go back to work using your leverage. And the most important tool that we have is withholding our labor. But there is going to be an end in sight at some point in time, whether it's favorable or not. And that's why we would develop a nationwide language in the event that we were going to be on the hook for damages, that we would have nationwide boilerplate language that we would not go back to work without amnesty and hold unions, local unions, international unions harmless. So there always is a will and a way to figure out how to get around certain things. And I'm all for striking. There's no one here that wanted to shut this country down more than I did. But at the end of the day, when you can leverage and you know that you haven't overpromised and underdelivered and you were at where you're at with an 86.3% uh, ratification vote, you know, the, the threat of a strike was very credible and very effective. But to your point, it may not work that way in every single industry. So it all starts from the top and the leadership needs to lead. Just one quick thing, I mean, uh, on the things we should be doing to build on that. I am involved in a huge campaign right now, and we are in every single contract starting to bargain that, starting to bargain not that language, but similar but different language, and that's basically glacier-proofing your contracts now. Um, and everyone should be doing it. It's a couple simple sentences, might be to post them somewhere, and we've drafted a bunch of different versions of it, but every single union going to the table needs to make sure they're putting glacier-proof language on, which essentially says, this dispute shall not ever go to outside port systems, et cetera. So there's some different ways to write the sentences. And if the boss across the table knows what you're doing, uh, it's going to be hella hard to win, just like co common contract expiration. You've got to be willing to strike to get the language to get glacier proof now for whenever the next Supreme Court decision hits. And I think the one other thing that's just as important as amnesty, however it's crafted, yeah. is picket line protection language that gives you the right to not have to cross picket lines, uh, whether they are in your industry or not in your industry. We fight all the time with other unions, mostly the building trades who are great friends and great allies, 
But when we have an issue, they don't have picket line protection, meaning that they have to cross picket lines. They have to go to work. So there has to be a unified, uniform effort in organized labor to make sure that everybody has picket line protection. You know, when Unite Hair strikes at hotels, Unite Hair strikes wherever else, we as Teamsters, we provide rubbish delivery and pickup, I mean rubbish pickup, liquor delivery, we provide food delivery, we withhold our services because we've got strong language, which further enhances the solidarity and puts pressure on these corporations to settle because they are not getting the goods and services. So outside of the amnesty, we all got to be thinking about picking line language. Right now, the sag after strike and the Writers Guild strike, the reason why no one's crossing those picking lines, we have 20,000 Teamsters nationwide that work in the motion picture industry that does all the trucking, does all the chauffeuring, does anything with wheels as a Teamster on there. We have the strongest picking line protection, which is allowing us to honor those picket lines so no one's going to work. So that's something that we all have to be thinking about and putting our radar screen as leaders. And that's going to be effective if we decide and we have to continuously strike. This is why we're called the School of Labor and Urban Studies. I hope everyone's taking notes as you get ready for your next bargaining round. Thank you all for this incredible panel. President O'Brien, Jane McAlevey, uh, what a way to open up the year. Thanks, everyone. Issues like those raised in today's podcast are taken up in classroom discussions at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu to learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes visit slu.cuny.edu/podcast to subscribe to New Labor Forum and or sign up for our free monthly newsletter visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu